Hello, thanks for listening to the Total Knee Tips and Pearls podcast. This is Adam Rosen, your host. I'm a fellowship-trained orthopedic surgeon who specializes in joint replacement. In these episodes, I'm going to share with you a lot of my tips and tricks and review classic articles and current implant designs. Thanks for tuning in and on with the show. Hello and welcome back. This is Adam Rosen and you're listening to the Total Knee Tips and Pearls podcast. So today I'm going to talk to you about cementing. Um, as far as press fitting, I, I am not the person to talk to you about press fitting. Um, I know some people that do it. Um, I've reviewed it and I've looked at it. I personally don't do it. Um, so I'm going to leave that discussion up for somebody that's more of an expert on press fitting. So cementing. Um, cementing, it's really important because there is an art to cementing. And the temperature and humidity in the room does play a big role. As you've all seen, I'm sure, is that it's really hot and humid in the room one day and that cement cures really fast. So if you can be aware of that ahead of time, you might start using the cement earlier and have the team move a little bit more efficiently or get the cement up onto the surgical field quicker. But your team also plays a role in this, that my tech uh, and my nurse are all aware of that. They'll let me know what the humidity is, temperature, especially if it's out of the normal range for a typical day. And also on a hot or humid day, he may mix it a little less uh, and hand it up a little sooner. And if it's liquidy, uh, him looking in due to his experience, he may spend a little bit more time mixing it. So at the time that I get it, it's in that optimal consistency. Now, when you're doing all of this, you also should have a plan. Just like everything, we have a surgical plan. So for me in my room, typically the way it works when we get to this point is that my tech will go back to the back table and he'll get all of his cement stuff and just look for me to get the AOK to start mixing. In certain instances, we may have to go back and do something. So he wants to delay that if needed, but usually gets the AOK to start mixing. And then usually the fellow with this, with the assist at the table or the PA with the assist at the table has the leg in extension and they're going through a full irrigation, typically about 500 cc's at this step. Uh, throughout the entire case, I have different steps where we do a certain volume. So this way at the end of the case, I know I go through at least two liters. The solution to pollution is dilution. So irrigate, 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 but they're also looking for any remaining bone chips or bone pieces or debris that may be in the knee at that point. What I like to do at this point is I like to go back to the Mayo. I'll lay down a clean towel and then I will clean off all of my instruments. So I get all the debris and bone and marrow off all the instruments that we're now going to put into this fresh washed wound when we implant. And I like to get all my implants up and I place them onto the Mayo myself. So at this point, depending on what type of surgery I'm doing, will depend on the sequence of how I cement my implants. So for a cruciate retaining knee, I typically will expose my tibia and I will impact the tibia, put in the poly, and then expose the femur, place the femoral component, and lastly place the patellar component. And the reason that I do this is just a good sequence for me. I find that I can see the back of the tibia well at this point, as long as that tibia is seated, I know that I've gotten the cement out of the back. Um, And 99% of the time, I'm pretty sure what the poly is going to be based on trialing. And again, patient has put their faith in you that if I do all of this cement and then retest at the end and I'm loose by a millimeter, I will waste that poly. If I'm really unsure if there was something strange, 
those are the rare instances where I may just put a trial in and wait on opening up my real poly and put that in later. But typically it's tibial component, tibial poly, femoral component, patella. Um, if I'm doing posterior stabilized, what I find works best for me, uh, and again, this is dependent on the anatomy. You have to know during the procedure, could you expose everything well? But I typically will put the femur on first. So I expose the femur, put the the uh, bone cement on the femur, and then I've designed a, a PCL retractor, even though it's a posterior stabilized design. But what's nice is it has two prongs. I find that two prongs in my hand, it rotates less when you put it behind the, the uh, tibia. And there's an actual extra buildup behind that PCL retractor. So I still place a towel or a lap sponge so the metal doesn't touch the implant, but I find that this locks it into the notch, stabilizes the tibia and allows me to sublux the tibia well. At that point, then I'll put the tibial component in followed by the poly and then reduce it. I find it's a lot more difficult to put the tibia metal in than the femur and then try to sublux it forward to get the poly in. Um, And lastly, the patella. Now, if I'm doing a revision, um, just to kind of jump ahead though. Usually I have stems and augments on both the femur and the tibia. I will usually use two separate batches. So usually two bags of cement for the tibia, two bags of cement for the femur. And the order in which I do that kind of depends on the case, the anatomy, the exposure. Um, but typically femur first, tibia second. Um, now if I'm doing intramedullary for my femur and my tibia, which is what I typically do, I will use a bone plug. So my anterior chamfer cuts, my tech has already gone through typically and Ron Jordan off any soft tissue or cartilage. So I have one or two nice triangles that I can put into the tibia and I use a bone tamp to know that I'm at the appropriate depth. So I have that cement being stopped from extravasating down the tibia. Um, I don't typically use these in the femur. Most of the time, the femoral component will cover up over the hole or I'll just put a little plug of cement when I cement the femur. If I'm doing a revision, I typically will use a buck restrictor uh, so I get good cement interdigitation if I'm using stems. Okay, so that's just kind of a basic overview of this cement sort of sequence. Um, much more uh, difficult and longer discussion if we actually talk about companies and types of cement uh, that are out there. Um, that definitely is a great journal club discussion, looking at the different viscosities and what the strengths are and weaknesses of each individual Um So I'll leave that for some other discussion, maybe something in season two. So what do I do? And this is what I think is really important, more the art of putting in cement, because it's not just taking cement from the gun and sticking it on the implant or the bone and and believing that you're done. So I really spend time when we've washed and dried to make sure that that entire surface of bone that you're going to cement onto is dry and that there is no blood or fat or kind of marrowy type of stuff coming through that may affect your cement mantle. Now, I can't quote it right now, and I tried finding it, but I do remember reading a paper once, and I talked to an instrument designer years ago um, who had quoted uh, the idea that the cement, for some reason, interdigitates better to the metal surfaces of the implant when it goes on in a wet or wetter consistency. So one of the first things I'll do or my tech will do, depending on what we're doing at the time, uh, is as soon as the cement gun comes up to the field onto the Mayo, we'll actually add that cement in its wettest form to the tibia and the back of the femur. And this way it allows it to hopefully adhere better to that. It also gives us an idea to look and go, oh yeah, it's really wet or it's not too wet. I got to move quicker or faster or I have time. So at this point, the first place it goes on is on the back of the implant. 
Um, and then if I'm doing my cruciate retaining knee, so then I've exposed my tibia. So I use my PCL retractor posteriorly, a 90 degree bent home in laterally, a home in medially. I've dried the top of the tibia and used the suction device to suck the canal down to the bone plug area. And then what I'll typically do is I will fill up the hole or the canal. So this is just with the cement gun. And then what I do is I like to take my finger and I like to impact that down. And what you'll typically see is some blood or fat come up onto the surface of the tibia. So that's the reason I like to do this canal first. So I can then push that down and then dry the top once again. Because otherwise, if you put it on the top and then put it in the hole, when you pressurize, it comes up into the cement that you've already laid on the top of the tibial surface. So put it in the canal first. Now, if I'm using an implant that has more of a flat, thin design, um, I don't push down as far because I know that that fin is going to follow its way into the hole. If I have a design that has more of a large diameter cone type portion, I may push down a little bit harder because what I found is as you push that down, you get more cement that comes out. So you have to, depending on the type of implant that you're using, you want to try to control the amount of cement extravasation. So at this point, I put it in the hole, push down with my thumb or my finger, dry the top of the tibia again. And then what I do is I start working my way from the back corner to the front corner, usually posterior laterally to answer immediately with the cement gun. And I'm pushing with my finger the entire time and interdigitating that cement. Now, osteoporotic porous bone is going to suck up a lot of cement, where if they have harder sclerotic bone, you're not going to find that it's going to take as much cement. But I do like to finger pack so I get some good interdigitation. We'll be back after a quick break. Welcome to Fuller Butts, a behind-the-scenes plastic surgery podcast. Yes, you heard that right. Join your co-hosts, Dr. Sam Fuller and Dr. Dan Butts, board-certified plastic and reconstructive surgeons on an exclusive full-access pass into the world of plastic surgery. Combining their expertise and training, Doctors Fuller and Butts will share medical insights, detailed explanations, and lighthearted humor to keep you entertained and informed. We're certain you'll become passionate about the plastic surgery specialty and between debunking myths, uncovering truths, or just making you laugh out loud at their perspective on this creative and artistic field. We've got something for everyone. Now, a little asterisk caveat back up. I didn't talk about this before, um, but prior to this, just before we um, irrigate and we finish the tibia, I always... My tech will always have the drill up with a tiny little drill bit, and I drill multiple holes all around the tibia. If you have a fin, I never drill in line with the fin for fear of creating a stress riser where it could fracture. And if there is hard sclerotic bone on one side, I drill multiple punctured holes. I believe it may have something to do with pain, almost like an osteonecrotic hip, where you can drill, do this cordy compression to potentially decrease pressure. Um, but I've noticed that when I did or didn't over the years, that people that had that harder sclerotic bone tended to have more medial pain, especially in various knees. And when I drill this, you kind of feel the hard bone and kind of puncture into the softer bone below. I've noticed some of those patients don't have as much of that medial achy pain for such a long time. But most importantly, it allows, I think, good cement interdigitation. Um, so now I've pressurized that all down with my thumb. So now I have it in the hole and on the top. And now I have a nice cement mantle there, as well as in the back of the tibia. And then I place the tibia. Again, as the tibia goes in, you want to make sure that it's parallel and 
the only deviation in the algorithm is if you have these more typically obese patients where they have this fatty bone, everything's just oozy the entire case. As the tibia goes down about halfway, look underneath because occasionally you'll still get this huge gush of blood and bone marrow. And in that case, I'll take a lap underneath there and really try to dry it again. But for the most part, if you've done a good job of drying the bone and now you have two nice surfaces, cement on the back of the tibia, cement on the top of the tibia, as you push it down, you should be able to push it down almost flat by hand and then you know use your mallet again to impact it. Now again, this is cementing. We're not press fitting. You're not putting in an acetabulum, so you don't have to wail on this. And again, this is one of those nuances where you can make a mistake. So mistakes that can be made if you go in tilted. Let's say you're on the soft lateral side and it's being held up on the harder medial side and you don't notice it and you wail on it. You're going to compress the lateral bone and you're going to put this thing into valgus. Now, number two, I see a lot of times people will do this, and you notice it more when you stand on the side. If you're not the primary surgeon, you'll see a lot of times somebody will grab the handle of the tibial inserter, and if you make a fist, even making a fist now, your bicep flexes. So what I typically see is when people try to hold on to that handle hard, and they squeeze with their grip strength, they fire their bicep, and you pull the handle forward, which puts your tibia into anterior slope. So you got to be aware that this thing goes parallel to the lateral and medial sides as well as the anterior and posterior. And that's why I think pushing it down with your hand, you can really see it seat quite well. And then if you need to, you can hit it with the mallet a few times. It shouldn't take a lot of hits. In really soft osteoporotic ladies, a lot of times I'll put it in with the handle, take the handle off, and just with my fingers push it down, and you can get it flush. And then get your cement off around the rim. Most important, lateral, anterior, lateral. It's a common area where you tend to miss. So you want to make sure you have good visualization there. You get the cement out. And then I will typically then put my poly insert in. So I put my poly in, take out my retractors. Now, I see a lot of people at this point take two fingers and they'll put it on the tibia, on the poly, medially and laterally into the little divots. And what happens is as you go to sublux the tibia, you know, you're pulling on this slippery surface and you got your fingers right underneath the posterior condyle. So if you're using a posterior stabilized design, this doesn't work. But if you're using a cruciate retaining or substituting design, what I found is I just stick my finger right in the middle, right over the notch. You got this nice little hole in the back where you can grab it with one finger, pull the tibia forward, flex the knee, lift the femur up, sublux it underneath. So at this point, then I put my femoral retractors in and I once again expose and dry the femur. So suction down the canal, dry the top, the front, the back. And then what I'll do again, the cement's already been placed on the femur when the cement came up. Uh, I like to place the cement on the back of the femur, especially the posterior condyles. And still to this day, it's still really hard. So with the knee flexed up, you can really try to get some cement on the posterior condyles on the bone. But that's always the hardest part to get cement onto. Um, so I place cement on in a U-shaped pattern. So I typically go up across the top and then down. And I usually put a squirt in the actual canal from the intramedullary hole, and I'll plug that area up. And again, then finger pack. So I don't just put the cement on, put the implant on. Put the cement on and then finger pack. Really try to interdigitate all around the bone everywhere that I can to make sure that I have good cement interdigitation. And then I take my femoral component. I typically will put it on by hand. So what I find is that if you can lift the femur up, kind of hyperflex it, I'm always looking for four things if I have a pegged implant that I'm putting in. So I'm looking at posterior condyles, 
and the two pegs. If you match those up, your rotation and your anterior flexion extension is all going to be fine. But I find more often than not, if people aren't looking, you know, a lot of times they're looking in the front or the back. And if you have a peg design, if your pegs are off, soft bone, you're going to hit it, it's going to wail down or you're going to break something. So you really want to make sure that your pegs are okay, your posterior condyles are okay, and then you can get it on. If you have a notch or a box, you know, you can use that as well. You want to make sure that this thing has a tendency more often, especially with a PS design, to go into flexion. But you can put it in an extension. So again, when it goes on, making sure that you go on parallel, that your flexion extension is matched, that your varus or valgus is matched. Try to get it down as much as you can. If I have a hard-to-expose knee, something that's difficult, then I typically will use the inserter. Um, so there's not a right or wrong. It's whatever you're most comfortable with. But you want to make sure, once again, that you're pretty close to down and you're parallel before you start hitting it. And then my typical sequence is, you know, I'm usually a couple millimeters off the bone, so I'm almost down. And then I use the mallet, a couple wax to make sure that I'm down. And then I accentuate. I tilt that handle. Um, this is the, the non-attached handle at this point, your secondary impactor. I tilt it just a little bit to the lateral side, tap, tap, a little bit to the medial side, tap, tap. And then down again, flat, tap, tap. And this way it prevents it from being off just a little bit. And then we can remove all of the cement superiorly in the notch. And most importantly, posterior, but posterior lateral. Posterior lateral is a spot where you can easily miss a chunk of cement. So I always make it a habit of, you know, rechecking those posterior lateral, posterior medial corners and the anterior lateral corner around the tibia. Um, so at this point now we got our implants in there. And then I will bring the leg up into extension. And again, I talked about that you can adjust the balancing now with tiny little changes. So if you needed in soft bone and you were afraid of over compressing and the knee was a little loose, this is one you want to make sure that you don't crank into hyperextension or put a lot of force on because that tibia could potentially compact the tibial bone. And then all of a sudden now you're loose. You want to make sure that you put it into extension. Whereas if you had made your bone cuts and you were appropriate, but it was the smallest poly in there and you want to make sure that this thing goes down, that's one that you really want to make sure that you're putting your 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 belly on the foot and making sure that as the cement hardens that you are down and that you have full extension. But you want to make sure that you don't over or valgus it. Now, I'll typically put it down there and make sure that I can get this thing into extension but you don't want to put a lot of force in full extension. So usually then I'll put it down in five or 10 degrees of flexion. I have a bump that I use throughout the case, which is about eight towels thick. So we can lay it on that and I can lay some force as we're doing the patella. But just know that if you put it into extension or hyperextension and then put a lot of force, you might change, especially the tibia and cause a little posterior lift off. So you have to be careful in the leg position and what you're doing while the cement is hardening. So at this point, then I go to the patella. Again, the bone or the cement's already been placed on the patella on the back table. Dry the patella once again. You can use a freer or some other instrument with a lap to dry out the holes. Place your cement, push it down, pressurize it, put your implant on, use your clamp, and then clear out the bone cement. Now, hopefully, and the goal is that your patella cut was perfect, um, but just be aware that if the cut was beveled a little bit, and I see this more often if somebody starts low, so that medial side tends to be a little bit thinner, and then they, they recognize that they came up and they raise their hand, you have a little sort of angled step off that with the plastic button, if you crank that um, clamp down as hard as you can, the plastic is going to deform to the bone. 
And then once you've cleaned out the cement, you take the clamp off and that plastic undeforms back to flat and now you have a gap. So the goal there is to make your cut perfect. But the reality is if you don't, and it was too thin that to make it flat, you would have thinned out too much of the patella. Just be aware that when you close this clamp, you want to close it so you're flat and flush, which means that on that area where you beveled and took a little too much bone, you're going to have a thicker cement mantle, but you don't need to cramp that thing down as hard as you can because otherwise you're going to get that defect. Um, now, the last thing I do at this point, so my cement is hardened. Um, I am not a believer in testing my varus and valgus while the cement is curing. So I really try to keep that leg as straight as possible while the cement is curing. But lastly, what I will do is then, once again, recheck my tracking, recheck my extension, recheck my flexion, and recheck my varus valgus. Because on occasion, especially, it's always like these little old ladies that have osteoporotic bone that, you know, impact, impact, put an extension, and then all of a sudden now you're a little loose that I will waste a poly. I do believe that that cost of that poly is not worth keeping if it's going to affect the outcome of this person. The goal is to give this person the best possible knee that you can at the time while they're in the operation and while they're in the surgery. So at that point, I will go in and we'll pop the poly out and slap in a one millimeter thicker poly. Again, if I'm really unsure, those are the rare cases where I'll, I'll use a trial and then decide on the final poly thickness at the end of the case. But the very last thing that I do at this point, just prior to um, getting ready to close, is I will take the bovi and very specifically, and I'm coming from about the anterior chamfer, laterally, superiorly, down to the anterior chamfer, medially. And I will take the bovi and I will buzz about a millimeter or so of tissue all the way around the implant. And the reason is, you've heard probably people talk about this. If somebody's doing a manipulation and an arthroscopic lysis of adhesions, they always take about buzzing off this tissue. And I have seen on occasion that when you cement, some synovium gets tethered. And the analogy that I use for this is like, imagine that you're trying to walk away, but someone's got a hold of your hair. You know, you could walk away, but they're going to rip out a chunk of hair off your head. You could do it. It's going to hurt. So if you trap a little piece of synovium underneath that anterior flange, and then you try to get this person doing physical therapy, every time they go to bend it, it hurts. It's like someone's pulling their hair. So they're more likely to get stiff and wind up with a manipulation. And probably you break it up when you do a manipulation, or especially if you do an arthroscopic lysis of adhesions, you're taking it out there. But I make it a habit on every single case, and I'd probably say one out of 20 times as I'm doing, you actually see a tight band pop and kind of release. So, you know, take the bovi and just buzz anterior lateral chamfer all the way up superiorly around the superior aspect of the femoral component down medially into the medial chamfer area. And you're going to prevent any of those little adhesions or pieces of synovium from getting tethered underneath your implant. Last thing at this point, irrigate. So I irrigated again, another 500 cc's while my tech's breaking down the whole mayo and getting us set up to close. And that's going to be the discussion for the next episode um, is going into just the specifics on closure. Um, it'll be a, a fairly um, short one, but I'll just give you my little tips and pearls and what I've done over the years because it's changed over the past 15 years and what I use to close. Uh, and then uh, we'll have a few more episodes after that um, before we finish up the season and Thanks for listening. I hope you found some of the information hopeful. My, my goal really is that you can just pick up one or two tips or pearls that is going to allow you to help one or two people in your practice um, and maybe hopefully you know answer a question that may have been in your head that 
you may not have been able to find the answer out to. But what I'm debating about now is I may finalize the last episode of the season. It may be a long episode, but what I may actually do is, you know, have you sit back, put on your headphones, shut your eyes, and I'm going to walk you through a whole case, probably talk pretty quickly to get through the case in a reasonable amount of time. But basically everything that I do from start to finish, which would be a good review of all of this, um, and it's a whole um, sequence algorithm outline that I've actually put together that I have in written form that I hand out to all the fellows that come on my service. So it's something that they can use to know going in what the steps are, but also something that they can use going forward to kind of keep notes on and make adjustments if they ever want to use any of those steps or retractors down the road. So thanks for listening. Um, This has been the Total Knee Tips and Pearls podcast. I'm Adam Rosen. And if you haven't already subscribed, please subscribe. And if you think this information would be useful for somebody that you know, please share this podcast information with them. And I will talk to you next time. You've been listening to the Total Knee Tips and Pearls podcast. Make sure that you're subscribed so you'll be notified of future episodes. And please take the time to leave a review. It helps other people like you find the show. Until next time, stay safe.